And you can turn the Bible, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 5, or you can just flip to page 9 on your bulletin. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5 this morning, looking particularly at verses 27 through 30. We are continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which will take us right into the heart of Matthew's gospel, but we're looking again at the sermon specifically. This is our 14th part looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we will continue to do that in the weeks to come as well. But again, Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at verses 27 through 30. Again, it's printed for you on page 9 of your bulletin, and it says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Well, last week, following the pattern of the Sermon on the Mount, I don't get to, I don't get to pick and choose where we go. <laughs> the Bible lays it out for me, right? So last week, we looked at murder. <laughs> Jesus talks about murder in the Sermon on the Mount, anger and these kinds of things, and today, he talks about adultery, So, who says the Bible is a boring book, right? It's not. It's not a boring book. Many of the Bible stories, as we know, require adult supervision, right? If they were made into movies, they would require at least PG-13, maybe more, right? The the, the stories and the arc of Scripture is at times scandalous because it's honest. It doesn't sugarcoat but it gives honest portrayals of human nature. It lays, again, uh, it lays bare our true need, our true sin, and again, the, the need that we have for a Savior. The Bible is no boring book. It requires adult supervision. I was reminded of this very uh, pointedly several months ago. I was trying to be that good father who is not just a pastor up here in front of you, but actually uh, practices what I preach. And so I was trying to read faithfully, you know, Bible stories to our kids uh, each and every night before dinner. You know, we would pray and just read a couple, you know, passages or maybe after dinner, uh, read a couple passages. And of course, we start in the Old Testament and we don't get too far between this term circumcision comes up. And Wyatt at the dinner table goes, what is circumcision? What does this word mean? You keep saying it. So of course, in the course of dinner, I have to explain to him what circumcision is, what the sign of the covenant was for Abraham. And of course, that was, um, I think, scarring for him, you know. And we don't do Bible stories anymore at dinner, okay? So we've tried to move that somewhere else into the, to the routine of our home. So again, the Bible is no boring book. So today, again, murder, adultery, what is Jesus doing? What is he doing? Well, as we know, for the second straight week, what he's doing is he's leveling the playing field. He's putting theological uh, smelling salts underneath 
the nose of your soul, or the nose of your heart, that you might be jarred into realizing just your need for saving. He's demonstrating how everybody is guilty. Everybody is guilty. Paul will later do this in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, but Jesus here in his teaching ministry is again leveling the playing field, putting theological smelling salts under our nose that we might wake up and again be reminded of our need for saving. If you recall, we have moved out of the Beatitudes, which are the introduction, as I made clear, to the sermon, and we've moved now uh, into the family room or the living room of the sermon. The Beatitudes were the opening patio. We've moved now into the family room of this larger sermon, and as we're beginning to see, we're looking around and seeing pieces of furniture in that living room. And each example or each teaching section that Jesus gives is an example from the law of Moses that he now is reinterpreting, or a better way to think of it is he's interpreting it rightly. He's interpreting it properly. And he's restoring these laws and these moral codes to their proper place and their proper understanding. And you can see him doing this. So for instance, if you noticed in verse 27, and he did this last week, In verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said, and then he continues, You have heard that it was said, just checking the box on the outside, just having a good external appearance is enough. You have heard that it was said that, but I tell you what? But I tell you, God looks all the way down into the heart. You've heard that it was said, if you're just doing good on the outside, great. But I tell you, God looks all the way down into the heart. And that's exactly why Christ later will call the Pharisees, he calls them what? He calls them whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, polished marble, whitewashed tomb, but inside are full of dead men's bones. Look good on the outside, Whitewashed tomb, but inside have a decaying heart, a decaying spirit. Think of even your own life. Think about, you know, today, some practical terms. Why do doctors practice internal medicine? Internal medicine. That's usually what your physician practices or what they're called. Why, when you go to buy a car, don't you just look on the outside and check the paint job and, you know, kick the tires, but you open up the hood? You want to see the inner workings? Give me a Carfax report. You know, I want to know all about this car. Why? Because though externals matter, they don't, you know, not matter, they matter, but often what happens on the inside matters even more. So again, God looks at the heart. So last week when Jesus lobbed what we thought was a softball over the plate, thou shalt not murder, upon closer look, we began to see that that might be the external fruit, but there are these deeper roots that lay underneath it. So murder might be the, you know, the worst possible scenario, this external fruit, but underneath murder are these roots, things like hatred, things like malice, things like insulting and slandering your brother, that again, if they go unchecked in our hearts and lives, can produce these awful, big sins, things like murder. 
A good way to think about it is, you know, we live in Florida. Think about if you have like a ficus hedge in your yard, right? Those are great. They give good privacy. They're all over Florida. But as you know, ficus has this deep, deep root system that goes all throughout your pipes, breaks your plumbing, you know, comes through your driveway, you know, all of these deep, deep roots. And you have to be careful, right, where you plant them. You have to check on them. Because again, you can see the outside, but what's going on underneath the surface is even more destructive, potentially. Think about an iceberg. The tip of the iceberg, that's a phrase we all use. The tip of the iceberg. Well, as you know, the iceberg is what you see, but what's happening underneath the water is this entire mountain of ice that's often larger underneath the surface than what you actually see above it. So this is the idea here. The same logic applies to these passages, even to today's passage. What does Jesus say? You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, don't worry. We're not going to do a show of hands here, okay? But I have a feeling if we did a show of hands in this room, by and large, we would be doing pretty good. Not many hands, hopefully no hands, go up. The chances are the record here in this room today is pretty good. A greater percentage of people are faithful in their marriages, faithful in their relationships than not. Just like, you know, when Jesus uh, asked the question last week, thou shalt not murder, there probably weren't too many hands that went up in that day either. You know, the crowd around him probably wasn't a bunch of murderers. So again, we're doing pretty good. But what happens, what happens when Jesus turns up the volume on the law? What happens when he amplifies it? What happens when Jesus takes the sonar and applies it to the deeper waters of our hearts. Again, probably won't find official adultery, just like he didn't find official murder last week. But what about the roots? What about the soil of our hearts? What about lingering eyes? What about wandering internet browsers? What about relationships at work that might cross the line? What is it? Again, what is it when Jesus takes the sonar and he applies it to the deeper waters of our hearts? Again, no show of hands is required. But these are the questions that these, these texts force us, sometimes uncomfortably, force us to ask ourselves. So where does it leave us? Where does it leave us? Well, this passage, I think, should leave us uh, more clearly seeing three things, three quick things. We should see the seriousness of our guilt, the seriousness of our growth, and the seriousness of the gospel. Three quick things that this passage should help us to see more clearly. The seriousness of our guilt, the seriousness of our growth, and the seriousness of the gospel. So let's just work through those real quickly. The seriousness of our guilt. Again, it needs to be said that Jesus truly does believe that it would be better to stop short at a hateful thought than to go all the way to murder. Okay, let's not confuse that for, for a minute, okay? It's better to stop short at a hateful thought than, of course, to go all the way to 
murder. It's better to stop short at a lustful thought than to cross the line. We have to realize that. There is a difference between the thought, between the desire, and the action. But the difference is in earthly consequences and impact on people. And it's not on something else. We'll talk about it in a minute. So again, there's a difference between the thought and the action. And the difference is that one will have a greater impact on people. Obviously, the action. If you hate somebody or you kill somebody, well, that affects that person (laughs) pretty drastically different, right? So again, there's a difference in terms of the impact on people and the earthly consequences that, you know, fulfilled action would actually uh, produce. So, for example, last week I mentioned that somebody in my family uh, used to have this device that you put on the dashboard of your car, and when you were really angry in traffic and somebody cut you off for the third time, you would press the device and it would make a different uh, uh, sound effect. So there'd be like a machine gun, there'd be like a grenade launcher, you know, there'd be like, you know, you can launch the hydrogen bomb, you know, whatever it is, right? And it would, in that moment, like, satisfy your anger, because, ah, I want to get that person, boom, there's the grenade launcher, right? It's a hilarious device. If you can still, we should look on Amazon if they still make them. I don't even know. This is a long time ago. I was a kid. Um, but again, there's a difference between pressing that button on the grenade launcher and then actually, you know, gas, hitting the gas and going through the backseat of somebody's car because they cut you off. Again, huge, huge difference. There's a difference between glancing too long at the latest airbrushed model on the cover of that grocery magazine. You mind your own business, getting some milk, getting some eggs, and oh, there's another Kardashian on the, on the, on the magazine cover. Wow, how does that work, okay? And you're just minding your own business, and there's a Kardashian in a bikini, right, in the grocery line, on the magazine cover, okay? Don't pretend like you don't know that. I see all of you, all right? There's a difference between in that moment taking a little bit of a longer glance than you should and then crossing the line, you know, into an extramarital affair in, in, your, in your life, okay? There's a big difference, again, between the consequences, between the effects on people. This is why we don't put people in jail who have hateful thoughts, but we do put people in jail who go all the way into the fruit of a hateful thought, which again is murder. But there's no difference, this is what Jesus wants us to see, there's no difference in terms of that spectrum of sin making us liable before God. So whether we find ourselves on the beginning of that sinful spectrum, where it's just the thought, or whether we find ourselves on the uh, you know, the, 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 the furthest end of that sinful spectrum where the thought has turned into action, what Christ tells us is that being anywhere on that sinful spectrum makes us liable before God, makes us guilty before God. What does James say later in his letter? He who keeps the whole law but stumbles at one point is guilty of it all. So again, Jesus levels the playing field, and he wants us to see that we have a tendency in our own lives to rank sins. There's first-class sins. There's second-class sins. There's third-class sins. But, to use an image, talk about the iceberg earlier, 
There was also first class, second class, third class on the Titanic. That didn't matter when it came to plowing into an unseen iceberg. At that moment, everybody, everybody was on a sinking ship. Everybody was on a sinking ship. And of course we know because of that day and age there was abhorred class privileges and some people could get lifeboats and some couldn't. That's a terrible situation. But generally speaking, you had first class, you had second class, you had third class. But when the iceberg came, everybody found themselves on a sinking ship. And that's the truth of the gospel here personally. We might rank sins, first class sin, second class sin, third class sin, but when it comes to standing liable before God, we are all guilty, we're all on a sinking ship left to our own devices. So the question then for us this morning is what if we actually believe that? What if we actually believe that? And you say, how dare you say, I'm a Christian, of course I believe Christ's words. How dare you ask me that question? But do you? Do I? Do I really take Christ here at face value? What if you believed, what if I believed, that again, yes, they're, they're different, but in terms of the intent and in terms of the, the liability before God, a lingering glance actually was infidelity against your spouse. What if you believe that? What if you believe that thought was actually unfaithfulness against your spouse? What if you believe that those two things made you liable before God the same way? And again, I'm not trying to make anybody here uncomfortable. <laughs> what I'm trying to do is get us to see this is the seriousness with which we are called to take our guilt before God. That's what Christ is trying to get us to see here. That we would see our guilt with a lot greater seriousness and we wouldn't just brush things aside so easily, if we actually believe that these, both these things made us guilty, then again, we wouldn't brush them aside so readily. But instead, what we would do is we would take with greater seriousness our Christian growth. And that's our second point. So if we really take seriously our guilt, and again, think of it in all the ways I just mentioned. Try to connect the dots in your own life between the law of God. If we really took serious our guilt, then we would take with greater seriousness our Christian growth. And that's our second point. And that's what Jesus basically wants us to see in verse 29. So here's the really hard part of the passage. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that, you're, that you lose one of your members than your whole body goes in to hell. So we should take seriously that our Christian growth. If our guilt is that pervasive, if thoughts can then turn into actions, basically, Christ is saying here, then why are we playing with fire? Why are we playing with fire? Should not we be so serious that we actively rid our lives of those things that might cause us to stumble? Again, just like you want somebody guilty of murder to be locked away, <laughs> just like you want somebody guilty of adultery to not be around you know, your family, your spouse, right? Jesus goes, well, why are you playing with fire? 
Why are you playing with those things in your own life, though, that are lingering around and that can cause you to stumble? So here he rhetorically asks, if your right eye is the adulterer among you, get rid of it. If your right hand, going back to last week's passage, is the murderer among you, or here, if your right hand is the adulterer among you, again, get rid of it. Get rid of it. And for some of us, it's really convicting. For some of us, we need to be reminded that that's the kind of seriousness that Christ calls us to in terms of putting to death those sinful desires in our hearts. Just like you don't want a, a cancer to go untreated because it will, it will, it will metastasize, it will spread. Right? You, have to, you have to root it out. Well, it's the same thing here in this passage that we're called to, to cut it off, to, to get rid of it. And again, some of us need to be reminded of that maybe a bit more seriously this morning. Now again, there's scores of commentaries who ask the question, well, is Jesus being literal here? Like, really? Pluck out your eye? Really? Is he being literal here or is he being figurative? It's hard to say for sure. I would argue we don't have record in the scriptures themselves of anybody in Christ's inner circle or any of the disciples actually doing this, right? Clearly, all these disciples would have been guilty in the same way, and Peter's not cutting off his hand. Peter's not plucking out his eye, okay? So I think Jesus here is being figurative, but it's a serious and a practical figurative language that should make you ask these kinds of questions. So again, maybe it's not your hand or your eye, but if your computer causes you to sin... Wouldn't it be better to toss it out and to figure out a whole new way to send emails? Are emails that important, right? If your computer causes you to sin, maybe you should toss it out, throw it away. For it's better if you to never send an email again than if your whole body be thrown into hell. You see? These are the kinds of ways we can sub out. What if your friendships cause you to sin? Well, wouldn't it be better to change friends and not worry about their slander or their rejection than it would be to offend in the name of Christ? What if your job causes you to sin, right? It asks you to do things that are unethical. It asks you to, to, to you know, cross lines you're not comfortable crossing, to cross boundaries you're not comfortable crossing. What if your job causes you to sin? Well, it's hard to say, but what if you walked away from that job even if it meant financial insecurity? Again, I don't wish that for anybody. You have to decide that for yourself. But you see what I'm saying? This is the kind of question that these passages get us to ask, basically, how willing are we to prioritize Christian growth? How willing are we to prioritize obedience to the commands of Christ? And again, that answer in your life, each person has to answer it for themselves, that answer will stand in direct proportion to how serious, again, you understand your guilt and your sin before God. What are you willing to discard? What are you willing to change? What are you willing to sacrifice to be obedient to the claims of Christ? Those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves in these challenging, challenging passages. The great hymn puts it this way. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. I surrender all, all to thee 
my blessed Savior, I surrender all. What can we surrender to God, again, that is holding us back in terms of our sanctification, in terms of our growth before the Lord in holiness? This is what Jesus is wanting us to ask. This is the, the, the reinterpretation of the law that he's getting at here. A seriousness about our guilt, a seriousness about our need for growth, our need for saving. But thankfully, thankfully, he doesn't leave us there on our own. He makes our guilt plain. He makes our need to grow plain. But thankfully, in this passage, we also are not left alone to simply try to figure this out in our own strength or to accomplish it in our own zeal. And that's our third and our final point. Because you see, God himself takes it seriously. And there's a seriousness about it in the gospel. That's our third and final point. A seriousness about our guilt, a seriousness about our growth, but thirdly and finally, a seriousness in the gospel. And this is on the part of God himself. For again, think about this actual passage. What happens when you take Christian growth seriously, when you take holiness seriously? Again, when figuratively speaking, you cut off the right hand, you, you cut out the right eye, again, whatever that is in your life, figuratively. What happens when you do that? Only for in no time at all, your left hand now causes you to sin, <laughs> right? Is that how it works? You cut off your right hand, only then for your left hand to cause you to sin eventually. You cut out your right eye, only for then your left eye to cause you to sin eventually. What happens? How many body parts have to be cut off? How much nipping and tucking has to happen, right, spiritually, in order for us then to finally be who that we are called to be? You see, if, if, if it was as simple as just blaming sinful desires and actions on others, again, the world and its temptation. Uh, the devil made me do it. It was my right hand to blame. It was my, my right eye to blame. Again, if it was that simple, we'd be in good shape, but... What happens? It's deeper than that, isn't it? It's deeper. There's that great quote that says, we have seen the enemy, and it's us. There's the other quote that says, the heart of the human problem, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. So we can chop off body parts all day long, but what about our hearts? Because it runs deeper, does it not? Our sinful nature is hardwired into us. It's in our DNA, if you will, which again is why Christ says that we must have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, which is why Christ will later say in the sermon that we must be perfect, perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You see, Christ here reminds us that we are not in need of some kind of spiritual bionic arm. We're not in need of some spiritual glass eye. We're in need of a whole new heart. We're in need of a whole new heart, a transformed heart. Christ will later say in Matthew 15, when he's asked by people why his disciples aren't washing their hands uh, ceremonially before this one encounter, Christ says this, don't you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from your heart. And this defiles a person. For out of our hearts come evil thoughts, murder, 
Adultery. There you go. That's the Sermon on the Mount right there. Out of our heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anybody. Now again, don't, don't get nervous. Jesus wasn't against like Purell or you know, good hygiene. There, were, there was these very specific ceremonial washings that Jesus says, they don't matter. They don't make you holy because you still have a sinful heart. So again, this is what he's getting at here. Don't miss that, that we need a new heart. And thankfully, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, we are given that new heart in the gospel. And that's the, the good news of this passage, that we are called to wage war against sin. We are called to take the things I mentioned earlier very seriously. We're called to actively look in our lives and figure out what can we do without? What can we move out of our lives that we might be more and more obedient to God? But we're not left alone in that fight. God is there with us. He does the heavy lifting, ultimately, of giving us a new heart that over time and over reflection upon the grace of God begins to desire new things begins to desire an obedience and a faithfulness and a walking after this God who loved you even when he knew your old sinful heart. Even then he loved you and gave you a new heart. So now over time we find our desires transformed and we want to now do what pleases him. Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Only he can do it. Renew a right spirit within me. Ezekiel and very Old Testament passage, Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, says God, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the old heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you, and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then finally, hear this from Paul. Therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are now ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we're called to fight the desires of the flesh. We're called to fight the sinful nature. We're called to put to rest those things that cause us to stumble. But we don't do it alone. God is with us. He walks alongside of us. He ultimately gives us that new heart that we might follow him, that we might live according to what pleases him. I'll close with this. There was a story uh, very recently on the Today Show that actually my wife was uh, telling me about powerful, where I was a young child uh, who was in need of a heart transplant. 
Uh, and as you know, that's a very difficult situation uh, to be in because in order for you to need a heart transplant, uh, not, not only are you very sick, but it requires somebody else to die, that you might then be given their heart. They might be an organ donor, gracious enough to give you that heart. And so this young child was in need of a heart transplant, and sure enough, circumstances were what they were, and a heart became available. A heart became available. And so it's this miraculous story of how a young boy was given newness of life because of the death of another. And so the heart transplant is successful. I mean, modern medicine is just incredible, is it not? Modern medicine is absolutely incredible. What a gift from God. But the heart transplant is successful. But the mother of the child who died came to listen to the heart transplant so she could listen to the beating heart of her deceased child, now in a new child, right? What a picture. This child dies, they're an organ donor, their heart is given to someone who needs it, who is sick, and now that beating heart continues with inside a child. And the mother comes, and her child might be gone, but that child's heart lives on. And so she comes to the operating room, when the child is healthy and recovering, and she gets to listen with a stethoscope, and she gets to hear, hear the beating heart of her child. What a picture, right? What a picture. And you can only hope, then, that the child who received the transplant will live in a way that honors the heart they were given, right? You can only hope that they will now live their life with such gratitude that they were given someone else's heart. Someone else had to die that they might live. And they will now live in response to that new heart that they have been given. They will honor the one whose heart they've been given. You can only hope that, right? Well, again, in the Christian life, it's the same picture. The same picture. Christ had to die that we might live. And it says God puts within us a new heart, a transformed heart heart. And so now, what do we do? Well, like that child who received the transplant, we now hopefully live in response. We live in obedient gratitude. We live in thankfulness to the one who placed that heart within us. And we now want to follow him, to follow him wherever he leads. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we do thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for your kindness and your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that though we are sinners, you forgive us. Though we are imperfect, you give us your perfection. Though we are unrighteous, you give us your righteousness. Lord, everything we have comes from you, so we pause to say thank you once again. And we pray, Lord, that you would indeed make us people who follow after you, who live in holiness, not because we're trying to earn your approval, not because we're trying to look down our nose at others, but we live in holiness out of a grateful heart for what you've done for us. We live obedient to you out of gratitude for what you did for us on the cross. So again, Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word, which convicts us, which encourages us. And we pray, Lord, now that when we leave here in just a few moments, that we would leave here ultimately not just being hearers of your word, but doers as well. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.